Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. I've got the blues in my heart and the devil in my fingers. Is a quote from Angus Young, an Australian musician, recognised as the best Australian guitarist of all time, as well as the co-founder, lead guitarist, songwriter, and only remaining original member of the hard rock band ACDC. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today. Someone who is a pioneer in Australian music, breaking with convention and taking the world on. Our guest today is Jadon Comerford, the founder and CEO of Unified Music Group, a globally renowned independent multi-service music company formed in Melbourne, providing artist management, recorded music, publishing, live events, and merchandise to a diverse stable of local and international artists, including Vance Joy, Tash Sultana, and Illy, just to name a few. Jadon is also a startup investor, building an ecosystem across the music industry for creative talent to thrive, supporting future leaders solve problems as co-founder of Side Stage Ventures, a venture capital fund with investments in exciting, innovative companies such as Heaps Normal, Vitruvian, Mr. Yum, and Tixel. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in the United Kingdom, the United States, and Sweden, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, managing partner of Blender Partners, board and executive search firm. Starting as a one-man band from the bedroom in his parents' house at 17, supported by early investors, Visa and MasterCard, with little knowledge of the music industry and learning on the fly, we hear the entrepreneur's story and his pursuit of a dream. The enormous work ethic, and just not giving up. He took on the establishment through a groundbreaking approach that has reshaped the business of music. With a sense of naivety, blended with honesty and integrity, he has captured the imagination of the emerging music talent and future greats, providing them with more than the one-off gig and false hopes, but a plan to reach success and maximize their potential. No doubt is his love of music, but it is his respect for the artist that resonates as we cover his story. The first signing, the investment in talent, the darkest days of COVID, the emergence of new technologies, the power of social media, and now the great renaissance. So sit back and enjoy the middle-class artist. Jadon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Where did the love affair of music begin? Oh, music. 
kind of makes the world go round, right? Mm. So I guess from a young age, music was in our household. My dad's always been a really keen guitar player and would sort of play play guitar and sing songs to all of us as we were kids. So Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, classics like that. Okay. And yeah, we were always encouraged to learn music from a young age. So I started with piano, went on to the clarinet, yep. uh, and then eventually found rock music. So naturally I wanted to learn the guitar. So yeah, from a young age, music was, yeah, really important to me. What did mum and dad do? Uh, mum was a nurse and dad was a plumber. Yep. So we had um, me and my two brothers, I'm the middle one. So when we all came along, mum stopped working and was, you know, looking after us and trying to keep us out of trouble. And dad was was a plumber. But yeah, uh, he eventually went beyond plumbing and started really early in Baker's Delight. Yes. That was a really massive career change for him from from plumber to baker. Initially, he was uh, like owned one of the first franchises in Melbourne mm-hmm. and then eventually learned to be a baker himself yeah, right. and opened his own bakery uh, in Canterbury uh, in Melbourne. And did the kids get involved in helping out the old man? Yeah, for sure. I actually remember like, I must have been about 15 or 16, I actually got grounded okay, yeah, right. for, uh, for sneaking out with my friends and going skateboarding in the city. Uh, and mum drove past and saw us. But it was really cool because <laughs> it's not really very good grounding, but I was allowed to work in the bakery and get paid. And so I actually made enough money while I was grounded working in the bakery to buy a bass guitar. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden I went from being just a guitar player to also being a bass player. Were you thinking about business then? Were you looking at customers coming in, how dad served, any tricks of the trade you're starting to pick up on? I think what my parents taught me was, because dad was a plumber, but also owned his own business. And yeah. then similarly was an owner in the bakeries and a big motivator for him doing that was so he could uh, make sure we went to the school that mum and dad wanted us to go to. Yes. And so I guess what I saw from that was this idea of just making things happen. If you had a, had a goal or a vision for something, you could just, you could actually just go and do it. And then for me, getting into music really early, learning how to play it and, you know, starting bands with my friends and stuff like that. I knew that I wanted to do something with music, but it was something that just didn't sit right about being an actual musician. You any good at it? Uh, I was okay, I think, but I kind of always had this issue of your passion and your and your work. Yep. Uh, funnily enough, I ended up finding that, but there was a pivotal moment where the house we grew up in, our next door neighbor was a, a guy named David Hirschfelder, David and Debbie Hirschfelder, and David's one of Australia's most famous film composers. So famous in the sense of not that many people know him, but- a lot of people know his work. Okay. And we would often spend time together. They had kids. We, you know, we're all roughly the same age. And one day his manager came over. And so I was probably about 12 or 13. And, and I was already kind of thinking, wait, how are these people making a living like my parents are? Mm. And then I meet this manager guy. And it was sort of this really early, vivid memory of, okay, there's a music business beyond just making music. And that was sort of like the beginning of me starting to think about what it might look like to work in the music business. When did you sell the clarinet? <laughs> I think I was about 14. It was around Jeez, the time. Big call. Yeah, well, because I now regret it because I probably listened to a lot more jazz music than I did as a kid. Because yep. I think that's one of the hard things about kids learning instruments. You generally want to play the music you're listening to. And so when I started listening to Nirvana and Green Day and Pearl Jam and these sorts of bands, it's pretty hard to play that on the clarinet. Yeah. So... That's when I picked up the guitar. Fair enough. At school, how were you accepted? Artists sometimes fit in or they, they don't fit in? How'd you go? 
I went to like a, it was a great school, but it was a very sort of uh, private school boy kind of school with the blazer and the tie and stuff like that. Yep. I, it's funny, I was reflecting on the weekend with some friends of mine and I've still got four really, really good friends from high school that I see on a regular basis. And, you know, I finished high school over 20 years ago. The people that I, that I were with were in their 50s and 60s and they said, that's pretty good going. So on reflection, I feel like I, I made some really good friends and I had a really good, I, I was given a really good opportunity. But as far as like the extracurricular activities that most other people were doing, like footy and yep. rowing and rugby, I wasn't interested in. When it came to sport, I did cross-country running. Yep. Um, maybe it goes, says something to the fact that I'm a solo founder. I like doing things on my own. But I learned a lot at that school and yeah, I think I, think I did all right. All right. So you go to university. Yeah. And then you want to talk us through when when did you start seriously thinking about that conversation all those years back with mum and dad that I can make something out of myself in this industry called music? Yeah. So I, as I was finishing high school, me and a friend had started a band and his dad was the general manager of Shock Records, yep. which at the time was one of Australia's biggest independent labels. And he said to us, why don't you guys make an album and put it out on your own label? And it was this amazing moment where I think- Be cool. Uh, yeah, me and, me and my friend Jackson, we both heard different things. Jackson heard, oh my God, we're going to put out an album. And I heard, oh my God, we're going to start a record label. And so we made the album. We started the record label. The album never came out. I didn't. Him and I parted ways. I took the label. He took the band. And, and, and that's really how I got started. Who took you under your wing? Did anybody? Sam Clark- the guy who was running Shock at the time, he was very helpful to me and got me in in the room with a lot of executives at Shock at the time, which was really helpful. Uh, early on, there's a very well-known music attorney who lives in Melbourne named David Vodica, one of the main uh, music attorneys in, in Australia, and he was always very good to me. He was my lawyer right from the start. He very quickly, though, realized that there's no way that this young kid was going to be able to afford to pay this guy to do work. Yep. And he introduced me to his most junior employee, a guy named Matthew Rogers, who became my lawyer, but also became my skateboarding friend and punk rock friend and beer drinking friend. And Matt's now been our chief operating officer for the last 12 years. So David was a really pivotal person in my early stage because he, I guess he gave me the belief, gave me the ability to really believe in myself and then also introduced me to Matt, who, who also believed and helped me really sort of build the business to where we're at now. So what was the industry like then when you're setting up? Because obviously it's gone through some massive change in the last 10 years. Yeah, well, so I started in 2002, Yeah, which is like, I think iTunes launched in Australia in 2006. So the reason why I say that is that was the sort of the real arrival of digital music. So I launched a business at one of the worst times in history to launch a music company. But as we know from a lot of these down periods in different industries, sometimes that's the best time to launch. Yeah, yeah, but what was the business focusing in? At the beginning, it was a record label. Okay. So really what we were doing was printing CDs and selling them. Yep. And little did I know, because I wasn't, I wasn't on the board of ARIA. I, wasn't, I didn't even know how to get access to these sorts of resources. I didn't realize that the market was going like this and people were losing their jobs at major labels because I didn't know any of these people. I remember the first time we had an album chart on the ARIA charts. I read about it in the newspaper like three weeks after it happened. Yeah, right. Because I didn't even have the resources to understand that. So I was just following my passion, which was finding great bands, 
telling as many people as I could about them and and just helping get get the word out. And how do you find great bands? Or do they find you? How does it work? Well, it's obviously come a long way since 2002 yeah. to 2023 where, you know, we've got a staff of over 100 people doing all sorts of various things and, you know, artists are coming in through so many different angles now. Yep. But at the beginning, it was, I was amongst it. Like I was in the scene, like I was going out almost every night. I was going on tour. I was, I was spending as much time as I possibly could with the bands and whether there was the bands that were supporting them or the bands they were supporting and mm-hmm. meeting other people in the industry and trying to get the word out there of what I was trying to build. Yeah, but why would I sign up to you? Terrific, you're with me. Terrific, you're having a few beers with me. We're sharing some great yarns. But you're asking me to sign up with you and you're a nobody at this stage, right? Oh, totally, yeah. And like we reflected on that recently because my first label that I started, Boomtown Records, turned 20 last year. And we had a bunch of the bands... Uh, well, I didn't do it, but my team organized this really nice sort of surprise event in the office to sort of commemorate this moment. And we had a lot of the early bands record videos and talk about their experience. And one of the bands, the first band I ever signed called Wishful Thinking, they told this really funny story that I got on the phone with them and I was telling them about how I'm, I'm going to do all this stuff for them, all this sort of stuff. And they said that they knew they could trust me because of the final thing I said on the call, which was, oh, by the way, I just want you to know I'm only 18 years old. And so I think... What that means is that I guess I've always managed expectations. Like I wasn't saying I'm going to make you the biggest band in the world. I was just saying, I'm going to print your CDs. I'm going to put them out in shops through Shock Records. I'm going to help you get some gigs. And, you know, do you want to get on board and and see if we can go somewhere? Because I don't think there were many people at that point approaching these bands. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have a lot of options. And not that we took advantage of that, but I think we just found people like like like-minded people that are maybe at a similar point in their careers particular genre that you're focused in and the music during, now, that, during, during those days? Yeah, it was all punk rock. Yep. Like I was reflecting on this the other night because um, our Live Nation in Melbourne have just relaunched Festival Hall. Yes. And they were asking people in the industry what their first gig was. My first gig was The Offspring at Festival Hall on, I think, December 2, 1997. So I was 13 years old and I went to Festival Hall and I saw The Offspring. And it just changed my life. It was just like are you kidding me? Like you can go into a room with 5,000 other people and just like jump around and go nuts and sing along and have the best time ever. I just always really connected with uh, that kind of music. It's really uplifting. It's about friendship and collaboration and unity and all these really exciting themes that I've found have actually played out quite uh, as important roles in my life. Okay. So I get that phone call and you're 18 years old, 19 years old, and you're promising me the world to your best of ability. And I say, yes. Okay, great. How are you funding yourself? I remember a conversation with my older brother. What, can I borrow some money or? Well, he asked me the same question you just asked me. I must have been about three or four years in and we had a band going into the studio the next day to start recording their album. And he literally said to me, he goes, how are you funding all this? And not proudly, but I, or on reflection, but I looked at him and I said, I actually don't know. I'm not sure. And it was kind of one of these moments where I was like, I've probably got to start thinking a little bit more about this, uh, more than just hanging out with the bands, trying to do my best efforts. And I needed to start to think a lot more about the business. So to be honest with you, my early investors were, you know, Visa and MasterCard. And then I was just maxing out credit cards and, and just using that to build something that I, I thought was, was viable. When was the first, in your mind, the first breakthrough? Oh, yeah, I really can do this. There was a few of them, 
But probably the most probably obvious was we had a band called The Getaway Plan, which would this was that album that they went in to make and it charted quite high on the ARIA charts and they had a, a single that started to get played on commercial radio and they started to sell out concerts and stuff like that. That was probably the moment where I was like, okay, this is really happening. But subsequently, it was also where I also decided, well, now I need to get an office. Now I need to employ staff. Yep. And that was sort of like, obviously, the revenue was going up, but so were the costs. So that was definitely the moment where I think things started to get serious. So what's the world like in business, in the business of music? Different to turning up to the bands and the gigs and having the beers and signing a few people, as you say. You're a bigger player now. What's it like? Yeah, so nowadays I very much hold the role of CEO and lead our organization. I have an incredible leadership team. I have my COO, my chief of staff, CFO, head of people, you know, finance, IT, like all these sorts of things that I never thought would have been, I guess, necessary, to be honest with you, when Mm -hmm. it was just going to be me and a, a few mates putting out a few records. But yeah, my job now is, it's very much like a job. Uh, it's still a job that I love and I pinch myself every day that I get to do it. But yeah, like last week, we brought together all of our business partners, as in businesses that we've invested in, and our leadership team to run like a, a one-day session uh, in Melbourne. So we had about 25 people in the room going through you know, this, that, and the other. And it was quite overwhelming, to be honest with you, in a really positive way because I was like, wow, you know, we're really doing this. We're really building something that's quite meaningful and making a real impact. So what actually is it, Jad, and what is the scope of the business? So our vision is that we're building an ecosystem for creative talent to thrive. Mm -hmm. So Unified owns three companies wholly, which is our artist management business, our record labels and publishing, and our merchandise company. Mm -hmm. Then we have six other companies that we've launched in partnership with other entrepreneurs. We make a concerted effort to be a minority shareholder in these businesses. So we essentially are empowering these entrepreneurs to build these businesses with us. Are you funding them in that sense, like seed capital? Yes, correct. Okay, right. And so going back to the vision of we're building an ecosystem for creative talent to thrive, our definition of creative talent is threefold. It's obviously artists, it's our team, and it's also our partners. And so what we're doing is we're trying to build the environment to attract this creative talent into our ecosystem so we can really thrive. And we feel pretty confident that there's something quite replicable in what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, We're building a lot of momentum. For example, if you think back to where I started with the MasterCard and the the hopes and dreams, I can now find that person and bring to the table a HR department, a finance department, strategy, finance, all this sort of stuff. Not trying to stop people from doing what I did, but just trying to get in and help them do it ideally in, in a better way and faster ultimately. So, Why does it differ from all the other album organizations in the past? Look, I don't know if it does. Um, it, it probably does. But I think we're doing – look, there's not many people that have really done this. There's obviously like the major labels that we all know that continue to consolidate in different ways and – but continue to grow and continue to become or be really important parts of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And there's other incredible companies like Mushroom who are celebrating their 50 years this year. Yep. And if there's anyone that we have probably taken cues from in this market, it would be them. Mm-hmm. You know, a really strong focus on Australian music and you know building businesses. My purpose is to invest in talent and build careers. 
that's my focus. That's what I love doing. But isn't it, that's the same as your competitors as well, isn't it? Yeah, but everyone does it differently. So you can define that in many different ways. So, you know, for example, internally at Unified, we have a unified leadership program. We're in our third year where we have a formal program that we put leaders through to, you know, create shared language, to create shared behaviors so we can collectively build the business together. Obviously, there's tons of examples of this in other industries, but I don't know of many examples like that in the music business. We really over-index in terms of how we invest in our people and how we develop them. And I think that makes a big difference because our industry is going back to my early days of the beers and the bands. Like for a long time, the music industry has had a culture of like, it's about how late you can stay up and how you can keep up. And I just don't think that's sustainable. And I also think it's, it's not very inclusive. I think it's created a huge boys club culture and one that we, yeah, we're trying to really change. We want people to be really good at their jobs. We want them to be able to have time away and not have to be working 24-7. We don't need to go out every night of the week. It's, it's, not, it's not needed. It's not sustainable. And I think artists are realizing that as well and, and, and appreciating that there's, there's more to life than all that stuff. So that's where I think maybe we're doing things slightly differently. So what's the scale of the opportunity ahead of you? I think it's pretty big. Yeah, It's already at a level that's much bigger than I ever thought it would be. Um, and I've already had to level up multiple times and I'm in the process of leveling up more because I think that we're creating this momentum around entrepreneurship and bringing in founders. And we've already got people in the ecosystem that are already bringing us their second idea. And we've got staff that are bringing ideas. And you know we're, we're already growing the business quite significantly in the United States. So I couldn't put like an exact number or destination on it, but mm-hmm. I think that the opportunity is quite big. So if I'm a private equity person, for example, a big investor, I'm having a chat to you over a couple of drinks one night and I say, look, of all the uh, the bands you know, all the bands bring, coming through the front door, what's the chances of their success? And I have a look at other businesses out there. Most PE houses will know they've got a ratio of, you know, one to four, one to five, one to 10, whatever it is. How does it work in your sector? Yeah, it's a good question. Like there's the old sort of adage, particularly with like the majors where it's like one in 10. Yeah. Uh, it was funny when we started getting into sort of the venture capital side of things, yeah. the, the similarities between venture and major labels is quite uncanny. I guess for me though, like, because from where we came from, yep. we need like nine in 10 to happen. That's right. Now, probably not so much because we've got scale, but I don't think we've really let go of that thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think that served us well. I think further to that, because we've got various businesses that are servicing the same client, we've got the ability to monetize these relationships across various verticals. So we might be putting out your record, but we're also printing your t-shirts and we're also doing your PR and so on and so forth. And so with that in mind, our chance of success is much greater. That said, it's hard to measure success. Because is it just making this much return or that much return? Like it's, you know, there's definitely some artists that go to zero, but you, let's say you got to get to five for it to be profitable. Mm-hmm. There's artists that go to 10 and 11. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's probably not a direct uh, answer. That's all right. What's the Australian music scene like then in terms of growth opportunity? Like you so said, you've done well, but you're obviously talking expansion international, but what's the thinking like here in Australia? I think well, like we've got an amazing music culture. The pedigree like laid by, you know, ACDC and Midnight Oil and these incredible bands. And we're now seeing more and more Australian music export. So whether it's, you know, for us with Vance Joy or Tess Sultana or 
other amazing artists like Tame Impala and Troy Sivan and it's just constant success. One of the hardest things about music at the moment is the saturation. Like there's just a lot of music being released, which is also a good thing. It means more people are being creative and more people are expressing themselves. But it's definitely getting harder and harder to break through. And so what we've been talking about, and I sort of touched on it before, uh, how do you measure success? Mm. So is it all about conquering the world and selling out arenas everywhere? Or is it okay to have a whole cohort of artists that are all making a living? Yeah. So this term has emerged in the music industry, the, the middle-class artist. So they might not be playing at Wembley Stadium, mm-hmm. but they're making a few hundred grand a year and they're building a real business and they're connecting with their audience. That's probably more where I think the opportunity is to continue to develop that part of the industry. Biggest obstacles you find? There's like the obvious ones, cash flow, time, things like that. But I think it's just trying to build trying to build careers. It's hard to get something from zero to to go. And then it's, you know, we're dealing with people, you know. Once an artist gets out on the road, they might decide they don't like touring. Yep. Or maybe they make a really great record that sounds this way, but now they want to make a record that sounds that way. I think it's aligning everyone with what we're trying to achieve. That's probably the the biggest challenge, the biggest opportunity, and probably where the where the magic, I think, really sits in our industry. How did the magic go during COVID? <laughs> that was pretty tough. I'm not going to lie. I'll, I'll never forget like when we just started cancelling things, and it was like that realisation. I think it took me about two to three weeks to just go, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Because I remember the first, you know, I kept calling my friends in America because whether Americans are smart and us or not, but they've often got better research. You know, they're sort of, they've got data in six weeks, three months, maybe nine months. And I just sort of was like, I said to my team, we need to pretend like we're never putting on a concert ever again and no one's ever leaving Australia ever again. And I said, Right. That assumption is most likely going to be wrong. But if we don't think like that, we're not going to survive. So, yeah, losing live music was really tough because not only is it a huge revenue driver, but it's a huge marketing driver. Yeah. You're not selling T-shirts. You're not doing all the things. It's also, it was really tough for the artists, like on a on a mental level as well, because that's how they express themselves. And then for us and our team, that's often where we get our get our sort of reward and our excitement. So just sitting in front of Zoom all day, uh, releasing music or promoting things on social media, like, and then not getting that reward of the concert or the festival, that was really tough. But honestly, like, I definitely would prefer that the pandemic never happened. But the fact that it did, like, I'm at the point now where I'm grateful because I actually think it made our business so much better and our business is better off for it. Market share or just different way of thinking? Different way of thinking. But yeah, we've grown. We've grown significantly through the pandemic. And we definitely, our margins got hit really hard. And so we definitely, you know, saw much lower profits. But our revenue, our headcount, our business units, it's grown quite significantly. So what's the stories behind some of those key artists you've signed up? You know, sort of give us a bit of an insight, what you had to go through to convince them to come and join you? It's not usually a huge amount of convincing. And that's not like in an arrogant way. You usually sort of find a connection with with people. Like it's not, there's not like a tender process or something like that. There might be for like a major artist, a state or something like that is going up for management or something. There might be something like that. But 
usually connecting through like-minded, whether it's through the lawyer or the accountant or the agent or something like that. Every situation's unique. Like I've never like got on my knees and begged an artist to work with us. Um, I probably never would, to be honest with you. We like to sort of show up and really be honest about what we do. Like one of the challenges we had for a while was uh, artists wanted me to be their manager. Okay, right. say, well, okay. yeah. you know, I need to be with you. I don't want to be with so-and-so. I say, well- and That's you the person? Yeah. And I'm like, well, no, I can't. I'm not a good manager for you. Firstly, I've already got my my book of clients that, that I focus on. But honestly, I spend half my time in long meetings and working on big strategy. Like if you need to talk to me, I probably won't call you back for a few hours. Whereas this person, you know, is right on the cutting edge of this type of music you're doing. They know all the right people. They're going to be available for you all the time. And we've definitely got past that now. And that was like a huge breakthrough moment for us. Like success not having to be reliant on me being involved. Any particular catalyst? Because you've got a pretty good stable from what I've read before I came in here today. And yeah, we do. Everyone, everyone's but, told me about it and said it's been a great success story. Well, we've just got a great team though. So we've got a great team of people. Like artists aren't just coming to the company because of me. They're coming to the company because of the company and the individuals that work within it. And I think for me, I just, I didn't ever want to overpromise and underdeliver. And that's why I happily go into a meeting and go, I'm going to actually talk myself out of business here because I'm going to say, sorry, Greg, I'm not going to be your manager. But Sarah, she's the best manager for what you do. And I promise you that it will be amazing if you work together. And if you need me, I'll be there. But trust me, you probably won't need me. I know a little bit more emotional than, <laughs> say, um, other business people. Artists tend to be a little bit emotional. You've got to wait them out pretty quick, don't you? Well, yeah, you, everyone's different. No one is the same. And there's emotional artists, but I'm sure there's emotional executives that you work with, right? There are. There are. So I think that there's there's definitely some assumptions we can make about artists. Some of them are true, but not all of them are true. A lot of them are, are just really driven business people that are that are creative and want to express themselves. And, and we we come to the party and help them achieve that. All right. What's the uh, some of the worst bit of advice you've had so far as an entrepreneur? Oh, I guess like a lot of the cliches, those ones of like, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. I hate stuff like that. Obviously, there's a time to to pick up the mop and bucket and do the dishes or stuff like that. But if you're not empowering people, what's the point? And that's me. Like I made a concerted effort to build a larger business. Why am I going to come and work with you? Because this is hard. Yeah, you're in music. You're still in business and you're still an entrepreneur. Yeah. And it's competitive and it's a sector that's been around for a long time. And everyone tells you all the reasons why you can't do well in an established sector, correct? Yeah. Right. And I'm going for an interview and I've probably got two or three because I want to be in that sector and I meet you. So why am I going to join you? It's a really good point. I did have someone who used to work for me whose dad used to tell his friends, uh, my son used to work for Michael Gudinski, but now he works for this other guy. <laughs> and so to your point, yep. being the other guy is definitely – you need to work a bit harder and you need to find your point of difference. And I don't know, I think people just buy into the vision of what we're doing and and can see that we genuinely believe and we're going to offer people different opportunities And because th there's only so many independent music companies in Australia and so there's only so many roles for a CFO or a COO. There's not a huge amount of places to go. Not that we would take advantage of that, but like I think people realize that. And so you might be able to go across the street and get an extra 20 grand or, and vice versa. You might be able to leave another smaller company and come to us. But 
I think people have realized that we're ambitious and we're we're building something unique. And I think people just have got on board with that. How long does someone normally sign up for? And I know you probably can't answer this one because, but how do artists get looked after? Uh, well, they're various agreements. So management is like the management of their business. That's usually sort of around a three to five year relationship. Okay. Um, that's generally how it works. Okay. On the record label front, traditionally that's been album based. So X amount of albums, that's changing a little bit because not all artists make albums anymore. Yep. So it might be songs or it might be a period of time. It's all kind of negotiable. But yeah, it kind of varies per artist. And so each of our different businesses have the director relationship with the artist. So we don't have like one big contract that pulls you into everything. Okay. We've always really believed in this like a la carte option because one size does not fit all. And so I want to make sure that we're never putting an artist into something that they don't they don't think is going to work for them because all that's going to do is cause grief for them and, and our team and, and we just don't want that. And how competitive is the sector? I guess it's pretty competitive. You can tell yourself it's not because there aren't that many of us, but where it's competitive is the margins are really tight and if you get it wrong, you lose your margin pretty quickly. So I think the competitiveness is is more about not missing opportunities and making sure you make the most of things when you do. Because if you're, this might not make sense in a business sense, but I don't believe in competition in a sense of like trying to compete. Well, you I, just focus on yourself. I, yeah, I acknowledge that there are, there is competitive elements of the market, but we just focus on what we do. But yeah, every time we miss an artist that one of our contemporaries gets, that's something that we lost and that was us not being competitive. And that costs because, you know, it takes time to build an artist's career. We've been working with Vance Joy for 11 years now. So how did that one come about? Talk us through maybe in a cycle as an example. Yeah, well, that was like, I've told this story before. He actually was friends with my brother. And my brother sent me his song, Riptide. And I just said, wow, this is amazing. Can I get his number? We need to talk. And so it was, it was kind of that simple. How old were you at the time? Uh, it was 2012. So I was 27. At the time, it seemed so obvious. I heard the song. Uh, and I'd met him before uh, through my brother. I knew he was a great guy. I knew he sort of had the talent. But the thing is like, just because you've got a great song and all that, there's still this huge road that you need to go down for it to turn into something. Yeah. And I've spent a lot of my time being really grateful that that moment happened for me because it was a real like career changing moment for my business and for me personally. And for him as well. And for him as well. And yeah, and to that point, like- he wouldn't have known that. Yeah, well, none of us did. We just had belief. Did you have the platform at the time or did you make the platform up as you guys went along together? We had parts of the platform, but yeah, it definitely, you know, I moved to New York. So did my wife, Rachel, who manages Vance Joy. And we just went all in and she went on tour with him. She's, she's in Montreal with him right now. Yeah, we really put a lot into that and learned a lot and it opened a lot of doors for all of us and really allowed us to grow the business. But I guess that sort of, Going back to the original, by the way, I'm 18 years old. Yeah. By the way, you know, your mate's my brother. I'm really good at doing punk bands. I've never worked with an artist like this. So I'm going to bring my wife in because she knows this stuff better than I do. And we delivered on our word. And we continue to day in, day out, 11 years later. So where was Vance at the time? Was he, did he have three or four other options he was looking at? He probably could have if he wanted to, I did, think. Did he know his own ability? He still is one of the most humble people I know for how successful he is. I think he could have had other options. I think he felt a certain level of comfort with me because of the 
the relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think he knew he could trust me. And so, yeah, I think he just was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's see what we can achieve. All right. So what did you learn along the journey then? Because as you said, it wasn't all built, was it? No, I learned, I had to delegate a lot because I had to, when going overseas, I guess I started to build out this infrastructure of building out a leadership team and, you know, delegating these these roles. And because the thing is, and I think this is where a lot of people get stuck in business, especially in music, compared to hiring frontline marketing or like people working with artists to go and hire a CFO or a chief of staff, like these are not revenue generating roles and they're expensive. That's right. And so it's scary for entrepreneurs to make those bets. Absolutely. But that was something that I really believed in because I wanted to make sure we could continue to grow the business. And so I guess I learned to be a leader. I learned to delegate. I learned to empower other people. And I learned to like, I guess, build a proper a proper business and a proper infrastructure. So what did you have at the time, Jadon, in terms of scale, in terms of people? Uh, there was like 10 of us. Okay. Yeah. Right. So 10 of you and you've got this person signed up and yeah. it's going to change the game for both of you. Yeah. All right. And you've decided your role in. Okay. All in means what? We're going to back him all the way and we're going to follow him around the world because obviously you've moved to make this happen. And what did you say? You moved to New York, did you? Yeah. It's not a light decision. No, but New York's a pretty good city. So uh, I always wanted to live overseas, but I could never afford to because I was living off my credit card in Melbourne. But I, I think all in for me was, it was my time. And it was, it was my time and my energy and my word because I'd built this really great network in the music industry because I like knowing people. But the reality is a lot of the bands that we had up to that point were hard rock, heavy metal kind of bands. So they weren't going to get a look in at radio or things like this. So I was able to really just Which even means, why would I go with you then? Yeah, totally. Yeah. But I was able to go all in. I just put everything I could into it. And I just said, this is going to be one of the biggest things ever. And I was with with Damien from the record label that signed Vance Joy in Australia the other night. And we were were talking about because Riptide is 16 times platinum in Australia. And it's still top 40 on the charts today. Really? And it came out over 10 years ago. Vance Joyce had many, many more hits beyond that, but that song was the catalyst. And to sort of see that go, wow, not only were we right, we were like historically right. Not Historically, this is one of the biggest songs that's ever happened in Australia. So for those not just in music, but setting up as entrepreneurs, we're going to make those big calls. What's your lessons there? Because you don't have all the facts. No, exactly. And this is the thing, like you you gain so many learnings in hindsight, right? Because there's things I could have also done differently. Yeah, but I, oh, it's, there's something about just following your gut. And it's like, you got to put some calculation around that. Yep. Maybe you can even feel it. I can feel it. But like, when I talk about this, like, and if I knew you better, I'd probably get even emotional. Yeah, we well, should, should be. Yeah, yeah. Because like- We well, edged a hell of a lot on this. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I, I think you, you've got to just, especially if you want to be- an entrepreneur and a founder, like you just got to, you got to back yourself and you've got to take risks. And, you know, if we had have taken that risk and we two years in, we're like, oh, actually might want to pull back on this. But the, the data quickly emerged to show us that we were taking the right, the right risk. Were you mentally prepared to make the right risks? I know you read all the self-help books and all the motivation <laughs> books, right? But when it comes to the play, it's a different thing, isn't it? It's your money. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of that stuff came from that time. Because picture me, like 30s old New York City, yep. you've got a hit song in your back pocket. Yeah, well, you think you have. You think you have. And uh, New York's a pretty tempting place to stay out late and drink all the time and all that sort of stuff. And I've got a, a really good friend who now lives in Melbourne, but he was living in New York at the time. And 
it was a Sunday sort of brunch thing. It was his girlfriend's birthday and there was a whole bunch of Aussie expats that got together for brunch. There was like 50 of them. And at the end of brunch, he goes, oh, Jed, we're going to go and uh, going to go on to have a few more drinks. You want to come? And I said, oh, nah, I'd love to, but I've got a yoga class and then I've got a Zoom call with the Melbourne office because it's Monday morning on Sunday in New York. And he reminded me of this recently and he goes, when you said that, I just knew you were going to be successful because instead of going and drinking 10 more beers, you went and looked after your health and then got online and started working. And not to credit myself too much, but that was that was a pivotal moment of not sort of just buying into all the things that New York had to offer. And I sometimes have some regrets. Probably could have had a bit more fun. Probably could have made a few more friends. Yep. But I, I went there to achieve something and I largely achieved it. But that is what sort of started to lead me towards, uh, you, know, you mentioned books like a friend of mine put me onto Good to Great by Jim Collins in 2019, which was bloody great timing. I went to Boulder, Colorado and did a, did a program with Jim and a handful of other entrepreneurs. And I did a business degree, but you know, in Australia, you study so young, you're not really ready to learn, I don't yep. think. And, it, and it, it hedges all the bets too, right? You cut yeah. yourself by doing business. That's it. But so I've always been really wanted to learn. So whether it's podcasts or books, these are the things that have helped me sort of, I guess I mentioned earlier, like leveling up and yeah, good to great. Like my team love to sort of poke fun at me because I just, it rare, rarely will a meeting happen without me talking about Jim Collins, even to the point where last year for my birthday, they got a cake made oh, and, it, and it was good to great. Uh, maybe it's like also a bit of imposter syndrome. I'm like, as I'm growing as this leader running this growing business, I'm like, I need to keep learning stuff. So I can keep being better and keep leading and keep teaching others. So that's why I read as much as I can. And Are you surrounding yourself with different people now? Yeah, big time. Definitely really grown my network in a big way. I get a lot out of meeting, like even meeting you, like we're only just chatting for a little bit now, but like I love the music industry. I love the people that I know in music, but I learn a lot from people outside of music. All right. Now, looking back, you said you could have done things a little bit better. So Vance has given you his, his sign and he's shaking that hand. And he's trusting you. Hindsight, what would you have done differently? Well, I think it's like a trait of a lot of entrepreneurs to, or well, a lot of humans to be like, I could have done better. It's not that I could have done better. I could have, and I've spoken to him about this. We found him so early on. Well, that's part of the deal, but isn't it? That's, that's what you've got to be there for, don't you? Jolly on the spot. Oh, totally. But we could have actually taken more from him, if that makes sense. What do you mean? So the way the industry works is, as I said, there's all these different contracts you sign yep. with people. And there's all sorts of stories that come out about these sort of deals that people sign with people. And there's nothing left to show for it type thing. Yeah. Yep. We did the exact opposite of that. So you're not Colonel Tom Parker then? No. No, exactly. That's, that's kind of the point. And so I, I don't think I said I could have done things better, could have done things differently. But I think because of the way we've done things, we're... 11 years into a happy relationship that I, I believe will hopefully last our lifetime. So I think that's sort of how we try to do business. It's not about trying to grab as much cash as you can now. It's about building long-term sustainable relationships, which also flow through to you know, their image and their, their career because you know people, people want to see people be successful over a long period of time. The whole one-hit wonder or here one day, go on the next, like, yeah. No one wants that. I don't want that kind of business. We want to work with artists for a long period of time. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Jadon Comerford. 
on our next episode, I sit down with Stu Greger, co-founder of Four Pillars Gin. I have no fear of any of our competitors. Never have. Not a minute's fear, right? Because I believe we can do everything better than all of them. We're an open book to everyone. And even if you make the identical gin to us, our gin and our brand and our storytelling and our website and our Instagram and our events and our bloody cellar door will all be better than yours. And our customers will be more loyal and our bias towards Four Pillars will be much greater than it is to you. So knock yourself out, mate. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now back to the show. Does the old cliche, birds of a feather flock together, come true? Did you find more people starting to come to you as a result of this and you being better at choosing the right people to partner with? Yeah, I think so. Is that like success breeds success? Yeah, that's what Kodinsky used to say. Yeah, I think so, because I think you just get better as well. You attract better people, your systems get better, your marketing gets better, and you know what to do. Not one size fits all, but we've definitely gotten better at being, the more successful we get, the better we get at doing what we do. So going back then in New York, Unified Music was doing exactly what compared to now? What's the big difference? We had the record label, we had the merch company, and we had the management company. Okay. But we hadn't done all this other stuff that we've now done. Okay. Why did you do the other stuff? That's a good question. Rachel, my wife, and I sometimes talk about, like, we could just do Vance Joy and just sit at the kitchen table and maybe have one employee and life would be pretty simple. Um, but you would be taking a lot of risk in sort of putting all your eggs in one basket. But beyond that... Why do more? I'm an entrepreneur. I have ideas and I like to try to act on them. We often talk about like, because there's a question of like, when is enough enough? Great question. And we talk about- But you're only pretty young. You're still got plenty, yeah, plenty of time ahead of you. I've got a fair bit of energy left in me. Yeah. And the question is, why don't we just see how far we can get? That's sort of what's driving us. Uh, and we're getting better at what we do as we get older. There's more controls in place. There's better- forecasting, there's better risk management, like everything's getting better. It doesn't mean that we're completely susceptible to failure or or anything like that, but we we are getting clearer and more focused on what we're doing. And I, I like that. We're creating more opportunities for, for artists and for founders and for our team members. I think music is one of the best things in the world. It, it's the soundtrack to like so much of our lives. So yeah, I think that I just want to keep going for as long as we can. And I think we've got something that's pretty special. You strike me as someone who's pretty composed. When you go to work, what's your leadership style all about? Yeah, I'm pretty composed. I guess I take what I do really seriously. Like I appreciate the trust people have put in me and, and others. So it's like, this is serious. Still have fun, but this is really serious. I guess we, we were talking about this the other day, but like to me, leadership is, it's a doing word. It's not a title. So just because you're a leader doesn't mean you're leading. So I really believe in, in leadership and how we can guide and influence people. I guess one of the big things I've learned a lot is asking questions. I think it's becoming more and more known that that's a style. And it's funny, sometimes my staff will do it to me. I'm like, are you, are you trying to coach me right now? And I love that because we really do have this culture of leadership within Unified. As I mentioned, we have this program that we're, we've been developing over the last three years. I'm big on empowering people. I actually just spent three months in Europe, mostly on holidays. Vance Joy got married. He had some shows and Rach and I decided to take a bit of time off. And last year I'd celebrated 20 years. I was feeling a little bit exhausted post-pandemic. Yep. And 
originally we called it long service leave and I thought that doesn't really sit that great for an entrepreneur. So we rebranded it sabbatical. But that was a really amazing opportunity for me to allow others to really step up. I came back after three months. So and you, didn't, you didn't lose any sleep sitting in Europe? Not at all. Didn't check your iPhone every five minutes? I deleted email off my phone. I built a process with my assistant and my COO about how people communicated with me. And honestly, as the weeks went on, like no one needed me. And when I got back, I didn't recognize some people, like in a positive way. Yeah, okay. And I came back to a business that had hired people, signed artists, signed off on financial year budgets. Like it was, it was humming. And not every business is in the same position, but I think me stepping away was one of the best things I ever did because it allowed others to grow and it's allowed me to come back with a new perspective and actually I can't go back to doing what I used to do. I've got to level up again myself and that to me is like, that's the dream. Okay, so you're leveling up yourself, you come back. What does that look like? Does it mean I just come in once in a while, give some advice and some guidance? What's changing? No, definitely not that. that that'll, okay. Eventually I'd like to get to that. Okay. I'm still very much the CEO and still very much active in leading the organization on a daily basis. But I think it's just about thinking bigger and trying to look further into the future and trying to make sure we're making decisions that yeah. are allowing us to set ourselves up for the, the, the best possible outcome for the business. Interesting one you got ahead of you now, Jaden, is that you're going big, right? It sounds like you want to go bigger. Can you get everyone to come with you? It's interesting when they start saying, I've never been there before, Dadden. Now, I know you got them on the bus with Jim Collins for the last couple of years. <laughs> done a great job in doing that. This is the big challenge ahead of you, isn't it? Yeah, I think, though, to be honest with you, so much of it has been driven by the team itself. I think the way, the fact that we've got, like our CFO likes to say, like we're, we're a collection of small companies. Yeah. And so it's not like one company is going to have 10,000 employees there are all these little microcosms building up the ecosystem. And so in a way, it sort of feels big, but then it doesn't feel big. And then it, it's like, it's it's not as scary as it seems, but I think that I've put together a team that they want to grow and they want to get better. And I think that the way that just the general momentum of the business is like, unless we just stop doing it, uh, the growth is just inevitable. All right. So how do you motivate them? I have such a good team. Seriously, like I can't stress it enough just how lucky I am to work with the people that I do. And it's such a cliche to say something like that, but I really mean it. And these people are so ambitious and they want to grow. So for me, I need to motivate them by showing them what's possible. And that's why I've got to zoom out as far as I possibly can so I can look over the hills and valleys as far as I can to the future to go, all right, we need to do this today to get us to there. Because I need them focused on, you know, today and tomorrow and maybe a year from now. Yep. But I've got to be able to focus on five, ten years from now. Yep. It's hard to do that when you're on the dance floor. You've got to get up on the balcony, as they say. And so, yeah, that's really where my work my work is. All right. You're in the balcony at the moment. Yep. What are you looking at? What are you seeing? I'm seeing a world where there's more and more people being creative so more and more people making music. Oh, um, more more coming out? Yeah, so much. Well, like, look at what you guys are doing with your podcast. Yep. It's not that different to you guys starting a band and starting to put out records. And that doesn't necessarily mean 
it's going to break the top 40 and get you on the front page of the you know, Rolling Stone magazine, but it might. And so we service artists and businesses in so many different stages of their careers. And so I, I made that comment earlier about the middle-class artist. I'm seeing a world where more and more artists make a living from their music. I think there's tremendous opportunity to service that part of the market, uh, which is something that I think we do really well. And it goes back to our roots of, of punk rock. Like there's been a few punk rock bands that have broken the mainstream, like the Sex Pistols yep. and Green Day and stuff, but not many. No, very few. But there's plenty that have made a living over a long period of time. And so we're finding that same thing in folk and, and uh, surf rock and like all sorts of different genres that are sort of having similar uh, artists operating at this sort of middle level. And we want to just keep building services and infrastructure to help allow those artists to hopefully get bigger and maybe break through, but at very least sustain and be able to build a really good business so they can make a living. And where are the artists coming from in your vision? Are they going to be international as much as they are Australian? Uh, yeah, well, we haven't really touched much on our US setup, but we've got 10 full-time staff in the US. Okay. Um, we've got a growing roster of American and Canadian artists uh, and English artists, actually. So we're seeing heaps of growth over there, actually, like quite significant growth. It's a lot more expensive to run the business over there. There's a lot more costs. Health insurance and salaries are a lot higher. Rents are a lot higher in America, yep. uh, or at least in some parts. But the market's so much bigger too, right? But the market's so much bigger. So we've got mainstream artists here in Australia versus quite unknown artists in America making way more money than the Australian version because they can go on tour and they can go on tour for three, six months at a time. Whereas here you go around Australia, it takes a couple of weeks and the tour's done. So we're going to see a lot more growth internationally. What's it take to get onto your team bus? I, if I knock on the door, I send you a note, send you an email... What are you looking for as prerequisites to come and join your organization? I'm very like values led. I'm actually having dinner tonight with someone that I really want to hire. I want to get to know them. This isn't everyone that we hire, but this is a specific role that will be working directly with me. But yeah, we have a really great head of people and culture. Kat Gibbs runs an amazing team and you know they really thoughtfully interview people and make really good decisions about how people come on board and then we onboard them in a really specific way. Yep. But obviously we want people that are great at their jobs and going to get great results. But just as importantly, if not more importantly, we want people that are aligned with our values, which might be cliched to say. I'm not sure how it resonates with you, but I've actually said this multiple times. We don't do what we do for profit, but we can't do it without it. The reason I say this is like, we obviously need to make money but there's a bigger picture here than just making money. Music has the power to change the world. And we've got artists putting their trust in us to build their careers. And we've got people putting their trust in us to build their careers. And I really believe that- That's really different, isn't it? Where you're pitching there, you're building careers. You just keep saying over and over. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people build careers, but I'm passionate about that in a big way. And we need the right people on board that are going to see the, the value of that. Because if you just come in to get it on your resume and hop to the next gig next year, like that's okay, but we're going to try to identify that if you're that type of person pretty quickly. State of play in Australia in terms of government support to the industry. Would have been pretty tough going during COVID, as you said. Yeah. And was there enough support to the industry? 
Obviously, JobKeeper was very helpful, particularly once they figured out that they had to also help sole traders because that was pretty tough on the like the the sound engineers of the world and all that. Yep. In some ways, there was a lot of support. I think in other ways, like I don't think we really acknowledged just how much our industry got affected. Yep. And now with the return, the costs have just gone up like crazy. My brother works in the building industry, so I know that's been a similar thing for them. But putting on sort of mid-level festivals now is pretty much impossible just for how expensive it is. Putting on events that are sort of attracting five to 10,000 people, just the cost of staging and security and fencing and all that just means that it's almost impossible. So the bigger festivals are the ones that are having a go at it, but they're taking tremendous amounts of risks and their break-evens are going up. So that's pretty tough. We need to address that because festivals drive so much tourism and create so much cultural impact as well. The latest announcement though, beyond COVID has been the formation of Creative Australia and Music Australia from the Labor government, Mm -hmm. which has been very well received by the music industry. Uh, It's the first time ever that we've had this kind of government support for our industry. There's To compare it to something like Screen Australia, which is is a film that's been there forever, or not forever, but for quite a long time. Music hasn't had anything like that. We've got some really great state bodies. We've got a great export body called uh, Sounds Australia. Creative Australia and Music Australia is hopefully going to be a real game changer for the industry. So just building on what you just said there, Jadon, the Prime Minister is very supportive, isn't he? Yeah. So him and the Arts Minister, uh, Tony Burke, have really championed this. At the beginning of the year, they announced the formation of Music Australia at the ESPY in Melbourne. And Elbow was there, um, which was really exciting. And so was Tony Burke. As Elbow was leaving, I actually pushed my way through the crowd and introduced myself to him. Our head of partnerships uh, told me I had to do it so we could get a photo for social media. Not usually the kind of thing I would do, but you know, I, I honestly just wanted to thank him because for me, I've been doing this for a long time and to see that kind of support being pledged by government to our industry is a really, really big thing. One of the things that they're talking about, which is in line with what I was talking about with international as well, is one of the goals of Music Australia is to make Australia a net exporter of music. Mm-hmm. There's only three countries at the moment in the world that are net exporters of music. That's the UK, the US, and Sweden. Sweden. Um, Yeah, because Sweden's where a lot of pop songs come from. Uh, ABBA was sort of like the genesis of that. Yep. And we, uh, as Unified, is a big exporter. We actually made the AFR Fast Global list as one of the fastest growing exporters as an Australian company, which is pretty cool. But yeah, I think that what what Elbow and Tony Burke, as musicians... um, are doing is awesome. You're talking about export. Can you talk me through also the impact of technology to the sector? How are you going to use it? What are you foreseeing in that regard? If music is going to change the world, as you say, or make the world spin around, how am I going to engage with music? What, what do you see coming over the hill when you're sitting up there on that balcony of yours? Yeah, like one of our team went the other day was saying the music industry is actually often trying to solve yesterday's problem. So like when Napster came along, I was thinking about how am I going to sue this? Yeah. And now AI is here yep. and everyone's sort of trying to figure out what side of the fence they want to sit on, whether they want to try to stop it or how they want to look at it. Yeah, there is a dark side to AI potentially. Like there's the ability to build a platform to generate millions of AI songs daily and put them on Spotify. If that happens, that's probably not great. No. Because all of a sudden we're looking at Spotify that's got billions of songs on it and you just don't know what you're looking at. But that could happen in so many industries. I'm sure it's happening on Amazon with e-commerce stores and stuff like that. 
where I see technology evolving is it's just going to help us organize the industry more. It's going to allow us to market better. It's going to allow us to find artists in a more efficient way. Because I don't know if you've heard any of these songs, but there's like AI making music that sounds almost as good as what humans are making. Yeah, right, right. And as yeah. we know, AI is just getting smarter. So eventually yeah. they're going to make music that's just as good. But the reality is like, do you want to go to the Horton Pavilion tonight and watch a robot? No. Nope. Maybe once, maybe twice. Could be fun. But you'd rather go see Midnight Oil play, right? Mm-hmm. Or any of these amazing Australian artists. So, But when the drum machine got invented, I think in the 80s, they were like, oh, drummers are over. <laughs> Obviously, there's still drummers. Yep. So I think that there's just all this technology that's going to continue to challenge us, but it's going to just create opportunities for us to do things better and smarter. The life of a musician, what's it like? Everyone's different, obviously. There's five-piece rock bands, and then there's solo singer-songwriters, and there's rappers. They're all living different ways and at different points in their career. But it's hard work mm. because at the end of the day, like if you look at them as a business owner yeah. and they're selling a product, yep. they've got to continually refine and improve that product yep. you know, for their audience. I think one of the biggest challenges for artists has been uh, the way social media, You know, when it first started, it was like, oh, yeah, every now and then put something on Facebook or, or something like that. Now, all of a sudden, you've got Instagram and TikTok, Snapchat, YouTube, and more and more platforms that keep emerging. So a lot of artists are feeling quite overwhelmed by the amount of content they need to create and the amount of connection they need to have with their audiences. That can be tough. But yeah, I think ultimately, I think it can be a good life, but I think it's a, it, it's a tough it's a tough thing for us. They need to be quite mentally strong because they're they also get a lot of feedback from their audience. Instantaneous, particularly, in some cases, yeah. yeah, with comments and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. as we know, the internet can be a pretty cruel place. Yep. So it can be quite tough. Do you guys help them through that sort of process? Is that yeah. part of what you do as well? Definitely. It's easy to say don't read the comments, and it's another thing to not read the comments. But yeah, we try our best to guide them through those sorts of moments, and also just try to help them make sure they are releasing their best work and promoting it in the best way possible so they can, I guess, get the best outcomes that they can be proud of because not everyone's going to always agree that that's a great song. Outside of music, what else are you investing in? So me and a few friends during the pandemic started a thing called Side Stage Ventures. So prior to that, I was I was curious in angel investing. It was sort of back to the point about technology and innovation and stuff like that. I, I saw it as a way of like, I can't do everything. I can't learn everything, but I can sort of get a hunch on something and maybe go and find someone else that's doing it and invest in them. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of took the form of a couple of my early investments were in America, but then pretty quickly back in Australia, I started to invest in almost any music tech founder that I could find. So we invested in an amazing company from Melbourne called Tixel, which is a ticketing platform. We invested in a AI retail media business called Cusick. Taking small positions or what do you take? Very small, very small positions. Yeah. But then what I found was that uh, me and a few friends were kind of aligned on the kinds of businesses we wanted to invest in. And that's where SideStage came from. So SideStage has had quite a bit of success with Mr. Yum, which is a very, very big success story. And then the other one that's- Come on, tell us a little about it. Oh, okay. So Mr. Yum, uh, QR code- digital menus. Yeah. They started in Melbourne, come out of the hospitality industry, wanted to help increase average order value on premise, yep. but also help uh, hospitality operators 
harness their data. You go up and buy a beer at the pub and just scan your phone and leave. We know nothing about that transaction. If that's ordered through a QR code, yep. we can start to understand behaviors of people and that can help drive promotions and themes and all these sorts of things. So that business has grown quite significantly and we got in right at the beginning on that. So that's been a really good investment. And over just the financial side of investment, do you give guidance to those building their business? Definitely. For me, I've sort of found some alignment between uh, like talent management and investing in founders because it's about spotting talent, investing in careers, all the stuff that I keep talking about. And then for me, because I've sort of got this 20-year bootstrap founder experience, yep. I can bring, uh, I guess, a unique perspective. Not always right because sometimes raising $100 million and running as fast as you can is the right thing to do. But even in that, I can give advice on HR or leadership or things like that. What's the scale of the business now in terms of revenue? Can you, are you able to share that? Unified? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I've shared this publicly, but this financial year, which will just ended, it's sitting around the 30 million mark. All right. If we're going to have this chat in five years' time, what's it going to be sitting on? I'd probably say, I think we'd be getting close to 100 by then. Okay. Does the business float one day? I don't know. I don't- Like what happens there? Is that yeah. part of the thinking or- do you get the other cliche, what's your exit strategy and all that type of stuff? Yeah, I get asked those questions all the time. The floating thing, I don't know enough about that stuff, to be honest with you. It doesn't seem that appealing to me. Just kind of feels like you're, you're just under the microscope, which is fine. I'm happy to do that. But I just don't know if that is the right thing for the kind of business we're trying to build. Mm -hmm. I don't have uh, like a dynasty that I'm building. We don't have children and we may not. We have four-legged children, do dogs and cats. <laughs> I'd love to be able to, at some point in the future, like hand the CEO role over to somebody else. That's one of my goals in the sort of next three to five to 10 years. Like that's a big gap, but somewhere in that gap mm -hmm. and eventually try to figure out how to yeah, further incentivize other people with equity in the business and look at how I can, yeah, transition in a way that allows the business to exist forever, basically. Does the business offer equity at the moment? It does to some people, and we're building on a further program at the moment. Yeah, so you, you find that's been instrumental in the growth of the business? Yeah, and retention and reward and stuff okay. like that. Should you have offered it earlier, in hindsight or not? Uh, I don't have any regrets. I think, though, the program we're building is going to be instrumental to the next stage of growth. All right. Anything else we should know in the next couple of years? you want to surprise us with anything today? <laughs> no, I think we're just going to keep, keep building the ecosystem keep supporting creative talent and just doing our best to have a good time and make a positive impact on the world. All right. If you're looking back at that young gentleman, 18 years old, saying that final line, just trust me, I'm only 18, what advice would you give now to that young man? Um, I'd say, yeah, follow your gut. Don't get caught up in things that aren't important. You won't know that until after that they weren't important, but just, yeah, be yourself and don't try to conform to what other people are doing and just keep going. On that, it's been a real pleasure today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. 